0: Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. Uh, Today I'm here joined with a very special guest. Martin Gurry. Uh, Martin is the author of "The Revolt of the Public" and "The Crisis of Authority in the New Millennium." Martin, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Eric. Happy to be here. So, Martin, when you look back at your uh, your work as a as a as an author, as in in the CIA, uh, I'm curious, in, in, particularly in the last decade, but also you know the work leading up to it, what is sort of the unifying thread that that ties it together? Uh, if 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 you, if you could pick something,
1: uh, that's a, that's actually a very good question. Some time ago, I had probably what might be considered the least glamorous job uh, in CIA. I was, a, um, I was an analyst of global media. Uh, the job was actually extremely fascinating, but, but pretty straightforward as I began my career. Uh, there was a small trickle of open information in the world and every country had, I guess what you would call it more or less the equivalent of the New York Times, a, a news source that said the news agenda. Uh, so that if, for example, the, the president or, or, or the secretary of state said, uh, how are my policies playing in France? There was literally one, maybe two newspapers that you would go to and that was it. It was done. Now, sometime, at the turn of the century, the new millennium, things just went haywire. They just went haywire. Um, I guess you would call it, if you want to start uh, to get poetic, uh, um, an earthquake epicenter somewhere between Mountain View and Palo Alto uh, generated a tsunami of information in volumes that were unprecedented in human experience. And that's not just a phrase uh, people have done some measuring. And, and for example, in the year 2002 produced double the amount of information of all previous human history, going back to the cave paintings. The year 2003 doubled that. So if you're going to follow that, that trend, it, it really does look like a gigantic wave. It looks like a tsunami. So those of us who were in CIA at the time were watching this in, you know, absolute astonishment uh, It created all kinds of problems uh, i mean in a sense if you're into open information it was like a a gigantic gift but then where do you go in this almost infinite universe to get your information everything seemed to contradict everything else but after a while what became really interesting and and it, this has been the thread that i have pursued since i left government is we saw that behind that tsunami—you could see it sweep around the world, right? I mean, people, people digitized at very different paces. You could see that that tsunami sweep across the world, and behind it, you would see this um, these inc- incredibly increased levels of uh, social and political turbulence. So there were, you know, angry and mocking voices. In, in nations where all literally all you had before was silence if, you, if the government wasn't talking all we had was silence and suddenly all these voices were were popping out that became the thread that I that I followed after um after I left government basically the change in information regime the the, the tremendous uh tsunami that swept over the world and it's sweeping still has battered the institutions that existed at the time and exist mostly today to a tremendous extent. That uh, we now need to probably rethink how we want to manage those institutions, including, by the way, democracy. No, let, let's let's get
0: into let's get into it now. Uh, let's talk
1: about how, how you you know you leave
0: in government, uh, how you sort of pulled that thread, and how that led to the book.
1: Right once once i became it became kind of obvious that the important aspect wasn't just the volume of information it was the fact that suddenly there was a new player that we had never seen before uh the public uh it was a very different kind of um up down spontaneously uh assembled um i mean when you look at what happened for example in egypt in tahrir square uh, revolt was called on Facebook. Basically, there's no way you could have done it with the existing uh, media in in Egypt because they were tightly controlled. But you could do it in Facebook. In fact, the, the the guy who who organized it first wasn't even inside. He was Egyptian, but he wasn't even inside Egypt at the time. So you're in the position of being able to organize a revolution from outside the country on on a virtual platform. Okay. Basically, the question that was – in CIA, we kind of saw the beginnings of that, and we were told, um, well, okay, so there are people who are yelling and screaming, and, and suddenly, yes, there are people who, who mock the, the regimes and the dictators and so forth. But what are they going to do? In the end, the police is going to come, and what are they going to do, fight the police with their laptops? So there was kind of a mocking – you know, kind of, this is just virtual blowing of steam. It has no real political change impact then the year 2011 happened and that's of course the arab spring which was the digital world was deeply deeply implicated in that of practically every every instance uh and then you had it spread to the democratic world you had uh, in spain what they called the indignados which essentially were Tahrir Square moved over to Puerta del Sol in Madrid. And then you had, of course, the occupiers here in the U.S. And that has continued all the way to, when you look at um, the yellow vest protests in France, they all seem to have, they began on Facebook, and they all seem to have the same kind of characteristics, which are very different from anything that had happened before. Uh, I'm old enough to know that if you wanted to to be a radical in olden days, you had to belong to a, a, a radical organization that had a, a structure, a very top-down structure, almost like a, a mirror of, of the police state or, the, the, organi- or the, the government you were trying to fight. It had to have an ideology. It had to have uh, command and, and control. And it had to have a printing press because unless you had that, nobody knew what you were about. None of those things are necessary anymore. In fact, they're frowned upon when you look at when you look at the revolts that I'm talking about, there are no leaders, there are no organizations, there are no structures, there are no ideologies. These are people who are very, in fact, divided about what they believe in, but they're very united and can be mobilized about what they believe against, what they stand against. So you have this kind of draw, uh, and this anti-draw that, that all you got to do is look outside your window or or spend a minute online and you realize that everybody's against everything well that's because that's the only way you can unify this very fractured public
0: yeah and we're going to get into a lot of these ideas that you get into at length in the book but but first i just want to stay at at the high level And, and we've talked about you know what's the thread your your career to date i'm curious you know now uh going forward you know now and in the next few years what are the questions and topics you are most you know wrestling with, most interested in, most uh, you eager to to find out, and are spending time on? It's one question, and I'll, I'll ask another question, slightly related: Is you know, fifty years from now, uh, or hundred years from now, when you, you when we are looking at your Wikipedia page, what uh, what do you want your unique contribution to the uh, the field of ideas uh, uh, to have been?
1: Well, that's, that's way over my, my self-esteem level there. But the first, the first question is a pretty easy one for me to answer what it is. It is very difficult for me to actually get into it. Now, bear in mind that both temperamentally and from my background, which is CIA, um, I believe that describing reality is awfully hard. I think we all see something. And because we have different perspectives, it's kind of a very strange patchwork. I think we miss a lot. And I think particularly when we've had this uh, a radical cha- social change or a radical technological change, we miss pr- practically the most important uh, aspects of, of reality. So prescribing what should happen, it comes very unnaturally to me, but I feel like you have to do it. I mean, if you, once you have de- defined this question, which is one in which you have these elites sitting on top of these um, very old-fashioned, sort of like industrial model, top-down organizations, clinging to their authority or, or to their their places. They have no authority, and you have this this public that is very angry at them and very anti and wants to basically kick them out, but has no real uh, alternatives as to what to put in its place. And you have democracy, which is something I believe in very deeply, caught in the middle of that. It's up to me to say, well, okay, so. So what, what happens? The most important political task, and it's very depressing to me because nobody's talking about it, is to restore, reconcile the public to the institutions of of, of democratic politics, all right? Right now the public has absolutely no choice. This this is global, by the way, it's not just America. We tend to think that our our politics are crazy. I'm now doing research on, on Britain and Brexit. They make American politics seem calm and sane by comparison. Okay, they are completely unhinged. So, this is global. If we there is no way you can maintain a democracy unless the, the majority of the of the people, the public, has trust in the institutions that are set to represent their their own voice. Right now, that is not the case. So. People fight over issues right now, whether it's immigration or if you're a Brit about where to leave the EU um, and so forth. But to me, those are almost secondary because whatever you decide in terms of issues for uh, immigration, against immigration, it doesn't matter. The public is not going to trust you. You need first to rebuild that bridge of trust, okay? And for that, I think the institutions are going to have to change. The institutions are not fit for the digital age. And honestly, I've come to the conclusion. Regretfully, I'm I'm not a revolutionary by any means, but I think our current elites are probably going to have to be replaced.
0: Uh, replaced by what? By new people. Uh, and, and what are the characteristics of, of those those new people versus the versus the current ones?
1: Well, I mean, you can get a hint, a glimpse by some of the individuals who are succeeding today. And and you know, depending on your politics, one of these two people will seem horrible to you. But I'm just looking at. At what they do. That's one thing I say is if you can tell what my politics are in my work, then somehow I have failed you. (laughs) You know, I'm not really interested in politics. I'm interested in reality. So take Trump and take Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. All right. Part of what the public feels is that when, when, um, when you elect somebody, this guy might have been your next door neighbor. Suddenly they go up into the pyramid and they, dress different, they talk different, they never remember the, the distance becomes immense. They become like movie stars. And, and suddenly there are bodyguards and there's metal detecting machines and you can't get to them anymore, right? Um that is the if I were to say one of the two prevalent complaints, grievances of the public worldwide. That's that's one of them. Well digital tools exist to narrow distance, to break down distance. And when when Ronald when when Donald Trump does the kind of tweets that everybody sometimes often uh considers to be kind of crazy and and sort of uh outlandish he is b- becoming present to his political base he's suddenly being them all right I'll tell you this: the people who voted for Trump were of very, very many different persuasions. It was actually a kind of a weird coalition. One thread that ran through the vast majority of them they said he talks just like me. I like him because he talks just like me now. When you listen to Trump, you have to wonder what that means. But I think what it probably means is he, did, he doesn't sound like somebody who's gone up to the pyramid and is talking to other elites because you, st- you talk the elite jargon because you don't really care whether the public listens to you or not. You're talking, trying to impress your peers, the other the senators, other heads of government or whatever, and have no interest in either asking or listening or talking to the people uh, below at the bottom of the pyramid. So Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has turned Instagram into kind of like a personal diary to just tremendous political effect. Now, Both these people, in my opinion, have weird political ideas, but they are narrowing that distance. Hopefully, you can find politicians whose ideas are a little more, to me, you know, in the middle or, or acceptable or whatever, uh, who can do this. These are the new people I'm talking about. Right now, most politicians are obsessed with media because why? Because that's what the elites have been obsessed with for the last 150 years. Well, when you're talking to media and media is talking to you, the public is down here and, and talking at you and not being listened um, and, and can tell what's going on. So communication in, in a, in a way that makes you feel present, not everybody can do it. I mean, if you put, put some of these old people in uh in government, in front of a laptop, they're probably going to sound very crusty and and not not very real. But um, you have to be kind of a performer. I think people say that um, Trump and AOC are authentic. I really disagree with that. I think there's no way on earth you put a camera, a cell phone camera in front of yourself and be authentic. These are two extraordinary performers, right? So you have to have that. You have to have that to make yourself seem authentic. But... The kind of new people that I'm talking about, that's at least one element that that you could see uh, would be necessary.
0: Yeah. And you can even see it in in the race right now, like Joe Biden and Andrew Yang, the way they're running their respective campaigns.
1: (laughs) Yes. Yeah. 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 I think Yang is probably the best. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, he's like a person, right? I mean, he's kind of like, he, he, he does his, you know, kind of what's it that he calls it where he got to jumps on top of people. I mean, it, there is a kind of a, I'm not that important a guy uh, sense that you have to convey uh, to make the public listen to you in the first place.
0: Yeah, totally. Okay, so I want to get into some of the ideas of the book. I'll sort of rephrase the, the Wikipedia question by asking, you know, How did that book, you know, if we're talking to third person, so don't be modest here. How did that book sort of change the, the conversation or what were sort of the main takeaways that that book, you know, inspired or, or did, what did people, you know, finally understand or, or take in from that?
1: After? I mean, I, I think it was one of those strange, strange moments. Um, and anyway, I, I, I wasn't alone in this. I had a the whole coterie of, of comrades, many of whom either current or mostly Uh, past uh, CIA people, um, most of whom experienced the same thing I did. But it seemed to us, and it seemed to me, that the reality I was looking at when I wrote the book was absolutely not under discussion. Everybody thought that what mattered was, for example, if you talk about American politics, well, who's going to win? The Republicans or the Democrats? Already to me back then, when I wrote the book in 2012, 13, 14, that that was incidental to, you looked at the the mainstream Republicans and mainstream Democrats, and you saw very few differences. But you looked at the Tea Party, and you looked at uh, the Netroots people, and you saw, okay, here are the differences. Those two things, those two organizations, those two clusters, networks, had far more in common, although they disagreed vehemently about, about substance, but there was far more in common in behavior in wanting to disrupt and, and uh in a sense uh supplant uh the established order in, in politics, and you could see that being happening well of course with with news the news uh, business you could see it happening with the, the universities you could see it happened with business, and people were fixated. i mean we were trying and again like I said i'm an old guy right I know what what how powerful that industrial model in which Every day came a newspaper to your front door. Every day you picked it up and read it. Now I'm an informed citizen. And then you went, and suddenly this flood of information comes and you realize that you knew nothing. You knew nothing, okay? Because because basically this was a tiny little trickle that was being fed to you by people who had, you know, their own interests, not necessarily yours. And that world starts to break apart. And nobody was seeing the fact that that old industrial model of the world, that top-down, expert-driven uh, model of the world was coming apart at the seams and that because our democracy sort of had been reshaped around that model, that was kind of uh, in trouble too a, a bit. So uh, yeah, democracy isn't necessarily wedded to the industrial model, necessarily uh, top down. In fact, that's sort of contradictory, but historically that's the way it has become. The political parties were there were people at the top and then there were the troops. Um They nominated a person, like it or lump it. So all of that, I think, was breaking up and nobody was noticing. And democracy, I thought, was, you know, at the time I was was kind of like hesitant to say it because you don't want to compound something that you feel is not a good thing by saying, well, democracy is in trouble a little bit. But of course, what's happened since 2016, which was when the book took off, the book did okay to begin with. And then, of course, 2016 came and it just took off because the revolt of the public, which is what the first part of my title is, and the real the real title is, which had been invisible to people, suddenly became Donald Trump and it became Brexit. And everybody said, what the hell is going on? And uh, they went to the book and said, well, here's one explanation anyway. So I would say that, that my contribution to the cause is in opening eyes to the fact that the way we were looking at the world was um, sort of our heads, kind of like in The Exorcist, where, where the the girl is possessed and their head kind of turns backwards. You know, I mean, I think our heads yeah. were our heads were turned backwards. You know, we were all looking at the world through the rearview mirror, and if you only looked ahead, you realize that the world had changed already, already, but it was also in the process of tremendous uh, turbulence and change, and that we had better keep our eyes on the road. So that would be my contribution. I would hope.
0: Yeah, and let, let's get into some of the the central ideas when, when you just unpack the, the main points. Why why is there a revolt of the public, and, and, and relatedly, why why has there been a crisis uh, of authority? And and you know, one of the things you're you're going to talk about is sort of the information uh, abundance. But some people might ask, hey, isn't you know this relates to reality and truth? Isn't a world of information abundance a world where we would have an easier time finding the, the truth and and reality? Why is it more difficult in that world?
1: Well, you would think so, wouldn't you? I mean, that was sort of our our take, our initial take uh, at, at, at the um, global media corner of CIA. It's like, hey, man, we're a fat city. In fact, not so. In fact, not so. Because what is it that in the old days you had what they called authoritative sources, right? New York Times was the authoritative source. If I, if I lived in another country in those days, I would have always been looking at New York Times. It was authoritative in, in, in what it, it reported. Every country had some version of that. When you have this tsunami come and knock that just completely uh, over, just sweep over it, and you have this turbulence blowing, and you have sources saying this and the opposite, then basically, instead of looking at information, you you have to become an expert in the sources themselves. You have to understand why you would select one source versus another. And in a universe of almost infinite sources, how do you do that? I mean, algorithmic search will take you to a certain level, but believe me, it's not the answer. So the revolt of the public essentially is predicated on, you know, because we asked ourselves, I asked myself, why the turbulence? You know, you saw the information kind of sweep over these countries and you saw this turbulence happening behind it. And when you reflect upon our institutions, they have been shaped by the industrial mind. They are top-down, they are rank-obsessed, they speak authoritatively, they think, but they never listen. They never listen. So they had legitimacy because they had authority, and they had authority because they 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 possess sort of a semi-monopoly over the information in the in their own domain. So, you know, if if John F. Kennedy gave a speech, even if it was a speech about how he had failed at the Bay of Pigs or whatever there wasn't a lot of carping behind him. He was he an was, uh, uncontested voice, right? What this sweep of information has done is basically every word, every image, every event, every fact today is contested. And these institutions, which were based on, on, on a passive mass audience, have found that that passive mass audience has kind of fractured into this hyperactive public, and the public is shrieking back at them, the institutions just lapse into, into crisis. They basically were not set up to do what this uh, moment in history is demanding of them. And they've, they've gone into a crisis. They're, they're they're definitely in a state of crisis. And some of them are crumbling away. I mean, the news business, I wouldn't want to invest money in that. And you, you, so you characterize this in the, uh,
0: the fifth wave. Right. So- We'll give some context on, on the different waves that, that have come before and, and where we are now.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, all this kind of made me reflect on okay, the history of information a little bit, and you it becomes pretty clear that at every great change in, in informational structure, there was there was a tremendous social and political transformation that occurred simultaneously. that. So, I mean, the first one was the invention of writing. And for that, you needed, you know, priests and Mandarin who could do little hieroglyphs or, you know, the, the scribes. And, and you had the great kingdoms in China and in Egypt. Uh, the second one was the invention of the alphabet, where suddenly you had a far more available uh, ability to to um, to read uh, deeper into the population. And you could not have had the classical republics of, of Greece and uh, and Rome, for example, without the alphabet. Yeah, you needed to know the laws. You needed to understand. You know, if you were a citizen of, of Athens, you knew the laws and you had to write your little scratch, if you were trying to um, ostracize somebody in your little pot shirt and say, okay, I'm going to write this guy's name. I've seen those names written. If you go to the museums in Athens, they had to write. The third one is probably the most disruptive, the printing press, of course. Um, And we can talk about that one later because that one is an interesting parallel to to our moment. But of course, not just the American and French revolutions, but the scientific revolution. I mean, there are so many... um, so many uh, procedures that the, the precision of printing made possible that would not have been possible before that basically left the face of of, uh, of the world changed afterwards. So that's the third. The fourth was the one that I was born into, and the one that is now collapsing. And that I would call that the the mass audience uh, model and the mass audience, the mass media model was actually a way to democratize the uh, information in the, the olden days only a few people read you know newspapers and it was all about um people in parliament or in, in congress giving fancy speeches and, and who cared about that and suddenly there was this mass this media that that pitched its information at a much more popular level and you know put in comics and whatnot you know so this was the mass media um which was in a weird way much less like what had gone before and much less like what went after and ours, of course, is, is the digital age. It is just beginning. I will just say this. We are standing at, at, at the very early stages of a transformation from that industrial model I just mentioned to something that doesn't even have a name yet. We have just gotten started, um, but already you can see the, ter- the trouble and the turbulence.
0: Say more, and I know you're not, uh, you know, you're very humble about the predictions you make, but say more about how you expect it to shake out or or what some of the characteristics of, of, of that might be. And maybe another way of, of, of getting at that could be, uh, say more about how the, you know, the third phase uh, it, it parallels this, this one, or the third wave, if that was the correct way.
1: Well, I have a friend um, called Antonio Garcia Martinez. He's, probably the best tweeter on Twitter. I mean, I mean, if you read his tweets, you become a smart person, which who can you say that about, right? And he's got a book called Chaos Monkeys, which is also a great book. But he he said once in my presence, if you had gone in the middle of the 30 years war in Europe and said, so what do you think of the of the printing press? Everybody would have said, it's been a disaster we we 're having the, the bloodiest war in the history of the continent, and it 's all because of all these crazy people who have different religious ideas and they have a printing press that that supports them and they can each go with their gospels and their interpretations of christianity and look there there's literally millions were dying i mean Germany was left devastated for a century so that 's a precautionary tale in the end I think uh the printing press turned out to be possibly the greatest one of the great breakthroughs in, in, in in the liberation of the human race. But early on, not so much. I think we are sort of, not quite, but we're in some virtual version of the, of the 30 years war in the digital dispensation. It can go any number of ways. You're right, I don't make predictions. I find that one way to be almost invariably wrong is to predict what's going to happen tomorrow. That's, <laughs> that, by the way, the CIA business model is prophecy. And if you look at their record, it's not particularly good. Yeah, I I would I think several trends can play themselves out. I'm always an optimist, and I think the bad ones may may not, but they are possible. The public, because it is so fractured, and each and each fraction has its own view about what should happen positively, and you can't you can't unite against that. It's there's too many little war bands fighting that. So the only thing it can do is unite against. When it unites against it becomes. It can become very destructive. You push that to the next level, it's what I call nihilism, which is the idea that the destruction of the established order is a, is a form of progress in and of itself. Even if you don't have an alternative of what you want to put in place for what you're destroying, that that is a good thing. And today you can hear many voices saying that, by the way. And in my opinion... It's some version of what happens when these these evil human beings walk into a room and start shooting people that they have never met before. There's some sense of you know the the world is impure and and I'm the last pure person and I'm going to purify it by by killing and murdering strangers and innocents. I think that is the dark a dark vision another of the future, but it, and it's a possibility and 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 I, I mention it mainly because I think we need to keep our eye on that and struggle against it. I think another one is what's happening right now is a very sharp reaction of the elites. The elites, I, I define as the people who run these old, venerable institutions who are completely shaken and demoralized by what's happened in the last, oh say, 15, 20 years. But they have not, since 20, 2016 was a wake-up call for them. And they have sort of put their foot down and said, we are not going to allow this to happen. And there's a lot of, I think, in my opinion, as of the last piece I, I wrote, a lot of desire to curate The web, in other words, the web can't be allowed to be this crazy place where everybody can say anything and fake news is allowed to travel. We can't allow that to happen. We have to put pressure on 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 Facebook, pressure on Google, pressure on all these people who put out all this stuff, so that truth emerges, and so we can have. These are people who kind of mistake democracy with their own dominance of it because they have dominated democracy for so long, right? So now that they're out on the outs and, and and uh somebody like Trump is in charge, they they don't feel like they have failed. They feel the system is failing. Democracy is failing for them. And they blame the information, this the tsunami of information, which is, you know, indirectly true. But of course their solution is we have to control the information. So another bad thing that might happen is a, a very reactionary political class that decides to put in all kinds of regulations of what's allowed to be said online. The Europeans are partway there, by the way, I think. I don't think it can happen because I think the web is just too enormous, too too vast a place, and you can always go find another corner where you can say whatever the heck you want. But the attempt itself would be very harmful, I think, and and we're sort of sidling towards that. In an ideal world, a good a good outcome would be one in which – Digital tools are put to work in ways that you know uh, that wouldn't necessarily want to talk about but but that you can lessen the distance between government and and the public, and you can have forums where the public is listened to in some ways that it has to be of course administered so that the crazies don't, don't rule but but that can be done and you do it in wikipedia so that there is this this idea that the public has that the elites exist for their own benefit. They don't think the elites are there for them. I elect you, but then you basically go there and you become a fat cat and you never listen to me. That idea, which is so destructive, begins to be healed down. It begins to be, uh, the public begins to be persuaded that no, maybe these institutions really are another way of my voice being heard. The the, the whole digital world has provided the public with certain expectations. I mean, if I want a date, and I've been married for decades and decades, so I wouldn't, but if I wanted a date, I, I, I could have one at the click of, of, of a mouse, right? Uh, if I want a car, same. Any number of things, I can get a click of the mouse. And and then I get a little question to me saying, well, do you want this other thing that's just like the thing you had, right? So I'm being told that my desires are shaping uh, the people who are selling me stuff. Then I go to government and it's like, okay, if I'm going to get a driver's license, I'm going to sit there for like three hours. If I want uh, a passport, I got to wait like four weeks. If I want a building permit, it may be years, right? And suddenly you have collided in the digital world in which I live commercially and socially has collided with this weird old industrial world, which is where the government lives politically. And I think that gap has got to be bridged and can be bridged. And if it is, then um, I think much of the public's anger will be will be sated.
0: You know, and you, you, know, you have this piece that just came out called The Tale to Leads," where you talk about sort of, you know, the Elizabeth Warren, you know, sort of side faction with the, uh, you know, Silicon Valley side faction of elites. I'm curious to sort of run a, a theory of history by you, and see how, how you react to it and then see sort of what you think. Sure. you know, we're going relative to it. So is it seems that this these two types of elites were greatly unified under the era of Obama when, you know, Twitter led to, uh, you know, as you write about in the book, the Arab Spring and, uh, you know, in Revolution Turkey, all, all these other things. And um, even, before, even before, obviously Trump was a side factor, but even before Trump, when sort of the technology elite threatened some of the other kind of you know, threatened the primacy of journalism, Uh, you know, the uh, universities with, you know, Teal doing sort of the, you know, Teal Fellowship. Um, And then even, um, you know, some of the power of government, because they, you know, question whether, you know, things like space should be government spending or other industries, you know, um, sort of, you should be more private than public, and became a um, enemy uh, of the sort of, I guess, left because it became too powerful for for its own good. Originally, it was a tool of the left and then became a sort of, you know, uh, real threat.
1: How do you react to that? Well, I mean, I think the elites are astonishingly blind to what's happening in technology. I mean, I was inside government. I was inside government and I am not a techie by any means. And as I keep repeating, I am not of the age where I would be uh, a digital native. But I mean, the incapacity of government when confronted with the digital. Is, is that story has never been told? I don't think somebody should tell it because it, it's it's very comical. It would make you either laugh or cry. Probably laugh, I would think. So when you say that there was kind of a yeah, Obama, by the way, I think was also a revolt of the public character. I mean, he was his whole operation to begin with was anti-establishment. He beat the the Democratic establishment. Guess who? Hillary Clinton. Uh, and, and then he beat the Republican establishment and, and basically set up his own shop that was not particularly dependent on the Democratic Party. But, yes, you know, the the, the Silicon Valley techies, the big the big people, particularly Google, but also Amazon to some extent and, and, and uh, um, Facebook and others um, were very friendly with the Obama crowd. They were There was a lot of people actually exchanged. There were a lot of Googleites who went over to to the administration. A lot of Obama people, who, I I've found them all over Silicon Valley. Um, that kind of masked the fact that this transformation was happening. The, the, the elites were blind, that the basically their their authority was eroding, and they had this kind of comfort zone where, with Obama, who was, I mean, I would not necessarily call him an elite figure, although he in the end, he kind of sided on that side. It was kind of like in between uh, he really knew how to play the um the new landscape much better than um say a Hillary Clinton so that masked the fact that everything else other than this small political arrangement with the Silicon Valley people and the fact that the Silicon Valley technology were kind of cool and we thought they were cool and nobody thinks that Washington is cool so okay we want to be cool just like them so there was kind of this this marriage of interest that masked the fact that almost every other um, aspect of this change was not beneficial to them. Of course, Trump was like the facade that was looking so nice and it crumbled down. And honestly, I don't think it's so much that they see that there is a danger. When you look at the the explanations for Trump that the elites have put forward, there is very little empirical evidence that they happen to be true. Fake news had almost no influence over the elections, right? The Russians... I am sure tried to um, do their manipulation thing uh, and, and fake news abound and have always abounded in Facebook. But when you look at the data, almost no influence. they ch- didn't change minds, which is what the important thing that you might've thought you could blame fake news on people who, who would have voted one way. Oh, they read some article on Facebook and now they're going to vote the other. That almost never happened. So I see that the anger against tech as more of a a, 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 a a sort of a second level uh explanation as to why they're angry about Trump. Trump, in their minds, is an impossibility. Trump should never have happened to this day, three years later, they don't accept that he should be there, right? He's just this weird, monstrous figure that has come out of nowhere and taken over uh, the government and so how do you explain that uh, uh, the explanation was, of course fake news and, and Russian interference. So if you are uh, in the news business, for example, and you basically, like the New York Times did, said we have to cover Trump differently. We have to give up on our objectivity because they are, if we think a candidate is dangerous, he has to be covered a certain specific way. And so they gave away that part of their their tradition as, as, um, as journalists. And in the end, they had no idea that Trump was going to get elected. They were 100. percent I think they said 9% chance. So if you read all the news as fit to print, you had no idea that Trump was going to. So the the news business looked absolutely discombobulated by the elections. But if you could blame fake news and you could blame Russia behind the fake news, suddenly they got themselves off the hook, and and the politicians that that were against uh, Trump got themselves off the hook, and then the next the next move is. Well, who's responsible for these victims? Well, it's the people who make money from those platforms. They're making money off of lies, essentially. And that's pretty much where the what I would call the, the crusade against the um the big platforms began. There's a there's an article out. That I just read it literally as we right before we went on on the intelligencer by by somebody called um Gabriel Benetti, who had never I, I don't know, but talking about the divorce between uh, Silicon Valley and the Democratic Party—it's almost exactly what I write about. Only, you know, a lot more inside the Beltway stuff. I mean, it's pretty apparent that there has been a, a sea change in the attitude of of the politicians here in Washington to the Silicon Valley, and and um, and they basically want to make them more like themselves. They feel like all oh, this disruption and all this innovation, this has led nowhere good, and we need to regulate it. And it seems that the uh, I'll call it sort of. This
0: might be unfair, but woke America versus tech America, b- both progressives, but both on the progressive side is, and maybe, maybe it's not woke America, maybe it's establishment, you know, progressive America is, they seem to have, you know, many candidates, both, you know, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Warren and AOC, you know, are aligned, seem to be aligned in that. Whereas sort of tech, you know, the Silicon Valley elites don't seem to have a, a candidate or, or don't seem to be in, involved as much. Yeah. Maybe What are your thoughts there?
1: Yeah, I mean, we, we should talk a little more about the tech elites later. I mean, the elites right now have been my research obsession because I think we need to change the way they behave, right? So I need to understand better uh, why it is to behave the way they do. I, I have my own peculiar take. I always end up in, in weird places, and I don't know why that is. Probably temperament more than anything else. But I feel like there are candidates of disruption in this race, and, and Trump is certainly the big one, but Sanders – is one too. There are candidates of what I would call in that in that post that you mentioned about the, the, the tale of two elites, I would call reactionary. There are people who want to go to Obama, but plus, 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 right? And, and I would put pretty much the rest of the Democratic pack in that. So you have disruption and reaction. And what there does not seem to be, the candidate that's missing for me is a candidate for reform. Yeah. The candidate that says we need to um, take... This system that is wedded to these very old structures and it completely seems to have lost the trust of the public, and we have to now reform it so that the public uh, regains that trust. And that candidate, I keep waiting for it, and uh, for him or her. Uh, and uh, I'm not, I'm not hearing that. Uh, as, as for the Silicon elites, they are politically very naive. I think very naive yeah I'm surprised
0: we don't have a charles sandberg like character running for running for office
1: yeah yeah one of the joys of this book that I wrote for me has been I have met so many interesting people and and i mean that that post again was was a factor of that. I thought American elites were okay. I, I know Washington, I know New York. I mean, you basically know. Who, and if you go to California, you meet more or less the same kinds of people uh, in many places in in, uh, in in the Pacific Coast. But when you go to Silicon Valley, you it was kind of like this is a different animal. This was a different animal. I mean, uh, I, I think it is capitalism at some kind of you know. Incredible level of of, uh, of speed and and energy, um, but also a lot of good things. Uh, they're very naive. They, they 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 don't have a lot of political savvy. But uh, what I have found there is that they they are willing to challenge their own opinions in a way that here in Washington you basically have to be who you are. You question anything, you become pariah. So they are a little hard positions that you must take, and there's no flexibility in them. I mean, if you believe one thing, you have to believe the rest. And you go to Silicon Valley, and to me, it's the best place in America if you want to talk ideas. It's the best place. These are smart people. They're all tech tech people, but they read prodigiously, prodigiously. It makes me embarrassed sometimes when I talk to them, because they've read everything and I haven't. And, and they're open, and they, they, of course, ask me questions because they think I know things. But I mean, these are people who are themselves uh, very brilliant, some of the smartest people I've ever met, and um, very open and 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 very learned. And I think it's not in that crowd, honestly, to do the kinds of things that you have to do to become uh, politically powerful. The, the, the political uh, process always is kind of messy and ugly. Uh, if you're a designer of of a uh, you know, some technical platform or, or you, you're a hacker of some kind, you know, there's a kind of elegance to that, that you're never going to get in politics.
0: But I, you know, I do have to, but I do, I do wonder, like if if someone like Andrew Yang can become a presidential candidate, a lot more people perhaps could become president, you know, if you're good at, you know, marketing or good at getting attention or, and smart and have ideas. and.
1: Well, that is exactly what I'm talking about. I think eventually that's going to happen, Eric. I think that's, what's going to happen. I think in the end, clinging to the old um, the old models is going to lose the public totally to, to the extent that you are never even going to get nominated or you're going to seem so weak politically that even the established parties will say, we have to find somebody who can communicate like a human being online. Um, and I think that's going to happen. And I think that that would be, and in part it's generational. I think in part it's generational, but I, don't want to put that on the young either. I think there's a lot of um, young people here in Washington that get turned uh, into old heads real quickly. So, I mean, you, you, it takes more than being young. You need to basically have a certain courage of, of standing out. I mean, I think if you look at Trump and you look at uh, AOC, whatever you want to say about them, they just stand out. They don't care what, you know, they, they, you have to stand, stand on your ground. You can't be a herd here we we like to be part of the herd so you want to be at the head of the herd because that's just the, the fun place but there's still a herd there these are people who are on their own okay and I, I do believe that's what that's what's going to be happening more and more i think you're going to find people like yang or like trump or like aoc only probably with a little more mainstream ideas and
0: let's go deeper on on uh on tech leads because uh you know, hey, they're, they're our audience <laughs> largely. Right. Uh, what what is sort of your your message for for what you wish Silicon Valley better uh, understood or better paid attention to, or or uh, so that they can you know have a better impact here?
1: I, I mean, actually, uh, that's a good question, and I, I honestly don't have an answer for that one because I'm a terrible political advisor. Um, I, like I say, I, I'm into understanding reality. I I guess I would go back to what I said before. I, I think. If you're used to a world in which change and, and disruption and even failure and certainly risk are just part of the atmosphere you breathe, what makes you, you know, get up in the morning and, and, and get up and go, man, you really need to make a deep imaginative effort to understand Washington politics because that is just not the way it is here. All right. So I, I would flip the question around and say, I wish we could import some of the mindset that you have in, in uh, Silicon Valley. When you look at what, what they do, I mean, there's this churning of ideas. And in the end, as I say, in, in the post, a very Darwinian process, this is not like somebody decides what's going to win out, right? This is competition and the Darwinian process of selection decides what wins in the end, which which platform gets gets to win, which which app uh, gets to make money, and which one doesn't. You know, here in Washington, it's it's all top down and mandated, and risk is avoided and failure is denied because it's fatal. If you if you accept that you have had one failure in your entire career, you're disgraced and you're discarded. Whereas So I would say my hope would be that those values, the Silicon Valley uh, values that I at least have experienced in in the last year or two going there uh, a couple of times and talking to some very interesting people, Um, uh, I wish we could import that into our politics. We would be a lot more risk takers. We could be a lot more innovative. You see what's happened in technology. It has changed the texture of basically human relations. You see what's happening in politics, and it's like this, Intellectual recycling plant, right? I mean, we take these worn-out old ideas like nationalism or socialism or populism, and we kind of like recycle them into this sort of insipid, pretend new. So I, I would, I would say to the people in uh, in Silicon Valley, come on down, change us. Not going to happen, but I wish it would.
0: <laughs> what do you think will end the tech lash, or uh, and when will it happen? How will it happen? Or will it happen?
1: That's a good question. That's a good question. I I don't know because um, much of what's happening right now is a little incomprehensible to me. I mean, I, I can give you reasons, but deep down in my heart of hearts, I go, these reasons are not powerful enough to explain what I'm seeing. You know, for example, everything is connected to Donald Trump. It is amazing how everything... And American politics writ large, and today American politics writ large means practically everything in this country, unfortunately, revolves around Donald Trump. Not just Trump doing things, but Trump's being perceived by people who absolutely think he is the great Satan and something has to happen. He's an impossibility. It couldn't be that he's there. He has to go somehow. So those two things are linked very closely. The, 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 the Trump, Trump loathing and the tech lash are the same thing, essentially. They're a reaction to a moment that changed everything, and people want to go back to the moment before. And they blame technology for uh, Trump happening in the first place, And which indirectly is correct, but the way they think of it uh, is probably not. But I, don't think, I think Trump, to me, is a symptom. Trump is not a cause of anything. And he, he basically was, uh, I would say, a club in the hands of the public. He basically was elected precisely because of all those weird attributes that, that the people who hate him so much uh, ascribe to him because they know that he's not one of them. The public wanted somebody who was not one of that crowd. And so they picked out this person who had very outlandish attributes. He really just didn't look like anything like that crowd. And they foisted them, uh, that person, on, on the presidency. So if Trump goes away, some other person is going to be foisted. So that the structural problem is not Trump. That's a, what I keep telling the um, the Trump haters. Yeah, I'm not a fan of the man, but uh, the Trump haters basically are consumed by him. All right, and I keep saying, you know, if he goes away, you may get worse. You may get worse. So those two things are very related, and I, I cannot begin to explain why people feel that powerfully about him. It's a fact that he, he plays on that, but why do they allow that to be, to be done? I, I, I really don't understand that. I have reasons, like I said, but at a deeper level, it don't make sense.
0: If, uh, if Trump wasn't elected and, say, Hillary had won, some people think we wouldn't be having this conversation at all. Do you think that we, but your, your last line of, hey, if we don't, if we don't get Trump, we might get some worse, that there's something that was going to happen to this degree? Or how do you think about that?
1: Well, I mean, history is not predictable, and it goes in zigzags. I have to tell you, I'm a Trump profiteer, right? I mean, Trump was the best thing that happened to my book because everybody said, "What the hell just happened?" and who has explained something that got, that can get me to this moment? And everybody turned to the book, all right? But it could have gone otherwise. So you and I would definitely not have been having this conversation because the book would have probably sunk without a trace. But and it may be that next time he, he loses, who knows? And, and and this is a very, very long, long transformation. This is a long march we're engaged in. Um, we in the U.S. tend to think in very small segments of time, this is a huge secular change and it will have its ups and it will have its downs. It may be like we'll, we flatten out and the turbulence dies down a little bit after the next election. But my point is the long-term turbulence is baked into the structure of what we have right now. And Trump is, to me, compared to the worst that you could possibly get, I mean, you could get way worse than him, right? I mean, Trump, when you look at his policies, he's basically conservative Republican, right? I mean, he, he talks different, but what he does is, and I'm not sure that if Jeb Bush had been elected, there would be that huge of a difference, except in the way he talks right? Um, now, that's important. That's not an unimportant thing, but you could get somebody who is way worse than that. If you're against Trump, I'm telling you, he is not the cause. People tend to ascribe superpowers to him in some way, the people like him the least ascribe the most powers to him and like superpowers. And they spend all this energy thinking of ways, you know, everything that's gone wrong in the world in the last three years, all the division, all all the um, partisanship, the nationalism, all of that is because of him. So they invest all these energies trying to get rid of the man. And I'm here to tell you, he is an effect. He is not a cause. And you get rid of him, and the turbulence is still going to be there. Yeah, and if
0: you had to crystallize or recrystallize the, the causes, what might those be?
1: Well, I mean, the cause is a public that feels totally divorced from the institutions, that alienated from the institutions of democracy and who thinks that the, the people who run these institutions are in it for themselves.
0: Yeah. How would you say uh, like China is, is engaged with or how is that a counterexample or not a counterexample to this? To...
1: I don't think it's a counterexample at all. I've been asked about China. I am not a Chinese expert and I, I am painfully aware of that. So everything I say, you have to accept as coming from somebody who just reads stuff. right? I, mean, I am not somebody who has an in-depth knowledge of Chinese history or culture or certainly language. But I was asked some time back. Uh, you you give all the you have all the um, the surveillance, disinformation campaigns that that the Chinese are supposed to be so incredibly sophisticated. I mean, they have a an internet police that the numbers bounce around. But if you said a million, nobody would laugh at you, right? Uh, and they have all this uh, personal surveillance from it, every. Everything you have ever put online, every photo everywhere, CC cameras, face recognition, everything, all that. And on top of that, they're very clever at creating a, a stories that are appear genuine and authentic coming from the public, but in fact are being manipulated from above. So everybody says, well, there are these, these brilliant Chinese regime uh, activities that, that nullify the revolt of the public. Look at Hong Kong. I mean look at Hong Kong. Hong Kong has been running the people in Hong Kong have been running circles around this brilliant Chinese surveillance disinformation crowd, all right? Running circles about them in the most in the most amazing way by the way. I think that they 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 have invented whole new if you look at a lot of these revolts of the public going back to the um Arab Spring all the way through the Yellow Vest in France they tend to be almost identical in many different ways. The the Hong Kong people have come up with some really interesting wrinkles having to do with, of course, the the, the regime they're fighting against, so, such as for example, just kind of you know, they're all on Telegram, you know, so they're so they're communicating by app, and then they suddenly appear in in like a shopping mall or in a street corner blocking traffic, and they sing songs or whatever, and then they disappear so that the police don't even have the time to get there. So essentially, for three months of a very long summer. Um, they have been disrupting politics in in uh, in Hong Kong, and the Chinese, who at any moment, if they wanted to, could crack down like they did in Tiananmen Square and basically just shoot everybody or basically bring in the tanks, have been very reluctant to do so because it would all be caught on on uh, cell phone cameras, and you would be seeing every last dead person there on your laptop on your TVs. Uh, and it would probably create an enormous amount of damage for a regime in China that's actually a lot more fragile than I think people realize.
0: Yeah. We were talking about journalism earlier and how you wouldn't want to be in, 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 you know, funding journalism today from a business perspective. Right. And, of course, Mark Andreessen had the, the famous thesis, you know, software is eating the world. Let's talk a little bit about how software is eating journalism. And if you, you, you know, maybe a little bit of historical context, uh, or at least in the last decade and to where we are now, how has sort of journalism changed as a result? You mentioned New York Times sort of giving up on objectivity. How, how has that been related to to business model and and where are we now? Uh,
1: again, in my experience, which is lengthy, you had these established media, you know, news media players. They were in their day. Among the most respected, in fact, in America, they would they would vote uh, Walter Cronkite a couple of years the most respected man in America. He was an anchorman for CBS News. For God's sake, how did you know he was trustworthy? He just looked trustworthy. He looked like somebody's uncle, you know, that successful uncle that that gives life lessons to the young people in the family, you know, and and but he just read the news. He had because the institutions of of of, uh, of, uh, of the industrial age were so authoritative. He had himself. A lot of borrowed authority from that perch that he sat on as anchorman. Okay, what started to happen was—I mean—and it was a long process of which the digital is only a piece of it. You, know, you had, um, for example, cable news, and you had cable—cable cable as a whole. You had satellite TV, which was very invasive and could get into places like uh, the, the, the dictatorships. Uh, just all you needed was an antenna, where they—they were—they were used to controlling the information environment. And suddenly you have this competition, and it's not just three people in three in three networks being authoritative, but everybody kind of screaming for a piece of the pie, and you get c n n you know chasing down some runaway bride, and that becomes news. The more that the the um, the audience fractures and that's what has happened. This is a moment when we're in a fracturing moment, everything is fracturing, even countries are beginning to fracture uh, so the audience fractured first of all. And when that happens, um that mass audience, which was kind of a fiction, it was basically you had no choice, uh they fractured because suddenly you had a choice, but there was a desperation that set into the the um the news business. And um I mean for the newspapers, the business model was ads, of course, and online ads have literally eaten that. All right. So so newspapers are are basically clinging by by a thread. I think TV news still make money and probably always will but but their their authority is is increasingly challenged and their their need to gain an audience means that they take more chances with silly stuff you know they basically the, they don't have that gravitas that that Walter Cronkite has had they're chasing ways of getting a bigger audience and that's never a dignified position to be in so i think and ultimately, anything on television, I wonder how that's going to play out in the age of streaming. That's a good question. That All that is in play the longer term. But I think all the business models for um, for the news business assumed a semi-monopoly. They had they controlled breaking, what they called breaking news. What was breaking news? Well, anything they talked about, right? Or anything they wrote about. Anything that didn't, that wasn't news. Well, suddenly there's this, this Almost infinity of information this enormous this enormous ocean of information swishing around this tiny little news media trickle uh, and part of the problem is if people don 't think you 're worth listening to, then what do you do how do you How do you get that back you can 't you can 't so they are basically victims of that structural change uh, they, they're used to being solitary uncontested voices and now they're just one 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 voice in a battle and an uproar yeah
0: you to look back at only you know a short period of time ago that you know one person you know Walter carcright could could tell you know a narrative and then we'd all believe it is is sort of crazy to to imagine in terms of how far we've come but also how big the the challenge is because of that and so like we keep calling it post-truth but what is after like like how do we you know regain a crisis or regain authority or even before authority how do we get reality or, or or collective reality
1: right as i think i said before that is the mission of uh i would say your generation eric okay uh, i would say that that is the, the the weight that has been placed on your shoulders you are going to have to find a way to create the structures and behave within them in a, in a way that the people who you interact with trust you. The opposite of fake news, for example, isn't a uh, scientific fact or, or platonic truth. The opposite of fake news is trust. Yeah. Fake news can happen only in an environment where people look at what used to be the old news business and have no trust for it, whatever. Okay. So, How do you get there? Uh, That's a long and and possibly impossible to get at question uh, at this moment. But obviously, some of the same things we're talking about politics apply. Um, you have to not talk like Walter Cronkite. That's a foolish thing to do. I mean, when you look at the way he sounds, when you look at the way those anchormen of those days sounded, it, and you suddenly remember what you listened to, I listened uh, to them, and how powerful they seem and so forth, and you listen to them now, and they just seem so pompous. They seem so, you know, they say these things that make no that Walter Cronkite would say at the end of every broadcast that that's the way it was on such and such a date of such and such a year, right? And you kind of go like, really? We just had like half an hour of Walter and maybe four mostly visual stories. So that's all that happened in the world today, you know? But, but that was sold. I mean, you, you bought it, right? Uh, that can't happen. That will not happen anymore. So basically, I think part of conveying, of being a, a mediator of information is maintaining honesty about, about how much you don't know right? they not pretending like our politicians always pretend that they can solve problems about this and solve problems. Things that are not really mathematical problems they are human conditions. And yes, you can make it better or worse, but they're not easy. They're not like solving a math uh, equation. So the same thing with the news business, I feel. I, I think it's, uh, you have to, do, or with the information, I think news is a bogus word. What is news? I think information uh, environment I think if you're a conveyor of information, uh, you have to be honest about what you know, honest about what you don't know. Be reticent to to be drawn into talking about things you don't know about. Be generous about sharing the things you do know about and explaining how it is that you know about it so the person understands. Don't be pompous. Don't stand behind a desk and talk with a tremendously deep voice like Walter Cronkite did. Just be you, you know. There's a number of things that can be done where if enough people do them, the information environment will start to heal from from this enormous toxic distrust that exists right now.
0: It is interesting. I mean, most of the things we've been talking about to increase trust or, or some of them have been sort of, um, you know, personality driven or, 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 or behavior driven, which is not to, you know, downplay that as opposed to, I'm curious, like institutional change, behavioral change versus institutional change. And so I'm curious to run a couple institutional uh, changes by you and, and see your thoughts. So one is, uh, you know, is eating the world. Maybe software will eat uh, governance. And maybe, we'll, you know, there's a small group of people who are trying to bring in charter cities and, and privatize startup cities, basically, so that people can have more exit. And, you know, maybe governments can look you know, similar to, if you don't like your iPhone, you just go to uh, Android. And uh, governments will, are competing for your institutions, competing for your money for you as a customer
1: how do you see that yeah that's exactly the 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 road that 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 we need to to go down and the estonians i i'm I'm, i keep dropping hints to anybody who's listening that i i would love for somebody to pay my way to estonia because who wants to pay their Uh own way there right Uh i mean but it's a but it's it's a fascinating experiment they have this e-culture in in government where now you know let's step back a moment population of Estonia is 1 million, okay? So it's like the size of a medium-sized American city or a small American state. But they have done remarkable things in bridging that gap, giving people control over their own information, number one, that's kind of important, making government information transparent to them, and then um, just kind of that that uh, gap that I talked about before where, you know, I can get a date with a click, but... It takes me three years to get a government permit to build in my own property. They have done away with that to a considerable degree. I mean, not, not every everything, but they have done it. They very fast services, very fast digital-based services. Yeah, I think have I haven't really looked at that very closely, but I think that that's exactly the way we need to go, and I think local is the way we need to do it because when you're living in this fractured world that I'm talking about right now and it's geographically fractured – as well as ideologically or, or politically fractured, the smaller the unit that, that, that you deal with, uh, the more that people will tend to just know each other and be able to come to some consensus because they live in the same place, okay? Whereas if you put a Californian and a Texan in the same bar, you're probably going to get a fight of some kind. Yeah, I think that's exactly... There need to be structural differences. If I don't talk about them, as you can say, I'm not smart enough to know what they ought to be, but that's one of them, yeah.
0: And another one people uh, recommend is, is decentralization, or uh, more decentralization. I'm curious how you think about the intersection between decentralization and centralization.
1: Well, I mean, okay, I think technology has kind of like this this momentum to it. And nothing is, nothing is predetermined. I am not a fatalist in any sense, uh, or a determinist in any sense. So you can take technology and you can throttle it if you wanted to. But it has a momentum. All right. So the old technology, the old industrialized technology, just centralized, standardized, pyramidized everything. And, and that was just for the last 150 years we've been doing that. And it's fascinating to watch that for the last 20 years, things have begun to disintegrate to a bundle to come apart. All right. So I think in the natural uh, course of of this new digital dispensation, decentralization is probably as close to a necessity as, as you can get. As I said, you can always politically mandate, no, we're not going to do it. But if you want to ride with the wave, uh, I think that would be the way to do it. And I think it would be, as I said before, a way of allowing people to have greater control over their own lives so that they don't have the luxury of always pointing at the top of the pyramid and saying, it's your fault, now fix it, okay? Because there's a little bit of dishonesty in that as well. Totally.
0: Talk more about how the elites or, or elsewhere have uh, have have perceived your book. Is it a pretty uni- uh, uniform in, in, in acceptance, or there, as there, what's the most reasonable pushback or or difference of, of, uh, of opinion you've gotten in response to, to your book?
1: Now that is a fun story. Okay, that is a really really fun story. Okay, San Francisco, Silicon Valley elites. I am a hero there, right? <laughs> I am a hero in Silicon Valley. Why? Go figure. No idea. But, I mean, it, it, they have all read it. I have talked to people in very high places over there. And, and that's how I got to know that culture so well. And I was so astounded by how different they were. France. The French love the book. It hasn't even been translated. I'm distantly talking to a French publisher to see if they want to translate it or not. In English. Okay? In English um they love it i've been taken to france several times by people who wanted me to talk there all right the brits like it somewhat i've i've gone to london as well now so i'm a hero in france and i'm a hero in silicon valley in san francisco i'm a zero in washington dc okay i um i pretty much which is where i had my whole career it's not even that i've been told well you're wrong or i'm an elite that i resent being called that or whatever it's more like I'm speaking in Sanskrit or in or in Mandarin, and they have no idea what I'm talking about. It's the most remarkable thing. Um, there is a like a, a huge gulf between the things that I am saying and the reality that the the power elites in Washington, even to this day, after all the changes, perceive in the world. They they look at a reality, and I say this is not what I'm seeing, and they just they don't hear. They don't hear. It's very strange. So. I am very happy with the, the, how well the book is done, and I'm, I'm very happy to have met some really interesting people in France and Britain and, and Silicon Valley and so forth. And and uh, and uh, this, that's still happening. I get all kinds of invitations, and it allows me to talk about this sort of thing, like I'm doing here, which I think has I number mean, one is good. I, I enjoy it; it's fun. But number two, I think there's an importance to it because I think we're still in the early stages of this turbulent moment and people need to have their eyes open. Honestly, I would love to have the um, the Washington elites say they hate my book. Let's dispute that. Let's talk about it because at least it would mean to me that they had engaged. Right now, it's like we're talking different languages. Very strange.
0: Nick, Nikolai Colin from The Family who's talked about how private companies have to you have the benefits that governments used used to have, or, or 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 provision some of the social services.
1: No, I think failure is a good one to talk about. We've talked about distance. I I, I said there was one of the two overarching grievances or themes that you always find when you look at all these these mass insurgencies or, or revolts. The other one is is the perception of absolute failure by the elites and it's interpreted it's n- almost never interpreted as incompetence almost always interpreted as corruption they they're failing not because they don't know what they're doing they're failing because they damn know what they're doing they're feathering their own nest and they're making us pay for it okay that one is an interesting one because the distance the distance grievance i think is real uh, and and failure on occasion you can say well of course it's real and, i mean we had the year 2008 we had all these experts, all the high priests of capitalism suddenly had no idea what they were talking about, no idea why the economy was going uh, south, n- no idea what to do about it. And a lot of people got hurt. That wasn't them, right? The, the, all of those people, I'm sure, went home to their bank accounts and they were, they were okay. And a lot of people got hurt who were them. And I think belief and faith and expertise, which was already wobbly after that, has never been the same and never probably will be in our lifetimes. So there have been failures. Of course, there have been failures. The difference in the old days and now is that failure, of course, happened uh, a little more discreetly back then. It happens out in the open. You know, before, it was like amongst the elites. Uh, now, it's like a plane crash. and was, The public is horrified watching what's happening. But honestly, uh, and a lot, for example, a lot of people blame the revolt of the public on economics. And honestly, look at that. I mean, you look at the United States of America today and you talk about government failure and you can point to any number of things where government has failed. And, and by by government, I mean, say, the last 15 years, right? So it's not just the particular administration. But, I mean, our, our economy is doing very well. We consume more than we ever have. We travel. I mean, the numbers of people in the world that travel, I, I read the number, I'm trying to remember it now, it's like 4 million Four billion people every year get on an airplane and travel. I mean, we travel far more than the average. If you ever been to Florence, Italy, they're all there. Okay, so I mean, they, they, we we consume more. We have more entertainment. We communicate vastly more. We can uh, t- uh, basically access infinite, infinitely more amounts of information. Why is the public so angry about failure? And and I think that gets to a structural. Situation with the with with the digital world, which it which I've mentioned before, which is that in, a, in an immense informational field full of babbling, roaring voices, you have to have the loudest, angriest voice even to be heard in the first place, right? If you're if you're measured and quiet, nobody's ever going to pay attention to you. That is that is. I have had several politicians who have come to me and said, "How how do I, as the moderate center, come off as as exciting?" And I said, "Okay." Nick's moderate and Nick's center because that's just right there is going to kill you. Um, It's the loud, angry voices that even get heard. uh, Nobody else gets past that barrier. But also structurally, when you have a divided public that is angry, the only way to unify it is to, again, turn it against the established order. So the sense of failure is halfway real, but halfway manufactured. And I think that's the conversation a new elite would have with the public as to what are your expectations? The public has very utopian expectations of government, right? It wants government to have prosperity. It wants government to bring equality. It wants absolute justice. It wants personal satisfaction because a lot of these people – don't don't have a church anymore. Don't don't really have the roots that they that that we used to get our satisfaction from. You know, our communities. You know, the people who move around. So suddenly, this, it's the politics that they read online. They want to get all that from 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 uh, their government. Well, that's never going to happen. So these utopian expectations I think drive that sense of failure as much as honest failures that have happened. That is an important. That is to me right right there with distance an important question that if I, if that candidate, that my magical candidate that that was for reform and not for disruption or reaction uh, would have to address is, okay, public, I'm only going to tell you the truth. You can't get all those things you want from government. A lot of things that people demand from government, government can't give them, right? So, but there's always a politician that says he can. And so he gets elected until we are told, no, 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 this cannot be. Uh, and we listen, we are gonna be caught in the loop.
0: I'm curious if we could talk about some of the the various political crises that are happening around the world and sort of compare and contrast mm-hmm. you know, uh, the common points, the differences, and how they all fit into your framework. So yep. some of that come in mind are, you know, Hong Kong, yep. uh, the ones in in Paris, yep. uh, you know, Brexit, and then, of course, you know, Trump, which we've talked quite a bit about.
1: Yeah, I mean, th- those are they're different. They tend to be two kind of um, models, I guess you would call it. They're the same thing, but the difference is in some of them, they're really just bottom-up insurgencies, kind of like what happened in, in, in Egypt, what happened uh, uh, in Spain with the Indignados, what happened in, in, in Paris and in France with, with the Yellow Vests. Uh, so those are they're basically leaderless and, and uh, like I said before, organization less and, and ideology less. And they are basically focused on something they're very much against, whether it's uh, Hosni Mubarak or, or Emmanuel Macron in France. There's another kind that kind of that same impulse seizes on a politician. It could be Barack Obama. It could be Donald Trump. It was actually Emmanuel Macron in his day. He was actually a very much a creature of the revolt of the public. So that obviously that revolt evolves uh, very much depending on the personality that has been chosen. Brexit was around a couple of people like Boris Johnson. Obviously, what happened with with uh, with Trump was that he was picked by a large number of people who disagreed about almost everything, but hated everything that Hillary Clinton stood for and probably a lot of the policies that the Obama administration had put in place. So basically, tr- Trump the he he the signal he sent was. Whatever I am, I am not that. I'm not them. I, I'm a completely different kind of weird animal. And so that he was chosen. And and you see that happening in, in Italy. There's a guy called uh, Salvati, I think it is, uh, who also has his own you know social media style. In the end, uh, it's the same thing. It's this upsurge from below. The politicians can manage it up to a certain degree. If they abandon it, they get voted out. And that has happened. It happened in, in Greece, for example, recently. You basically said, "Now nah, I'm going to become, it's happened to Macron. Macron got elected essentially, it was a revolt from below. His party was founded. I've talked to those people. It, it was a very flat, uh, very um, non-hierarchical uh, organization on March. And uh, they were founded like less than a year before the elections it was totally a, a citizen's movement and then they won the elections and they got eaten by the government of France, which is the most hierarchical structure on the face of the earth, right? And then suddenly, a year later, you have the Yellow Vest revolting against the people who had first been uh, there doing their, their own revolt. So if you abandon, if you abandon uh, the public, the public will come back and bite you. The problem is, what does the public want? And And the public, as I said, once you took in utopian things to happen. And how do you give that? I mean, I think the, the clever ones like Obama, he was always condemning things, right? So he gave the impression that he was not defending the system. He was, he was like a condemner in chief, right? Trump, what he does is he, he, he says to all these, he picks fights with people, he yells and screams a lot. Of so he doesn't seem like a president. He seems like somebody who, in, a, in a bar, you know, yelling and screaming, you know? So he, he conveys that image that he's not part of this establishment. But these are hard, difficult tricks to pull off. These are really difficult tricks to pull off, and uh, I'm not sure either one of them is uh, uh, replicable.
0: Yeah. One of the things you were saying earlier is you were surprised that Silicon, and maybe you were saying tongue in cheek that that you were a hero in Silicon Valley, but m- maybe it's because you explained you you know the techlash in a way that they could understand or appreciate. That doesn't make them, you know, look evil because <laughs> because it, it must be a surprise for. for so many people technologists, hey, why are you know, we were changing the world? Why are we now the villains?
1: Yeah, but but remember the the evil evil tech is just a factor of the last three years. So when I wrote the book, nobody was calling them evil. Um uh it was essentially 2016 that did that. So I think my own interpretation is just that. I don't I don't know there's an actual answer, a school answer to this. I think the book is about disruption. It's about how structures are breaking down, okay, and how we need to see the world for what it really is right now, and not not for the, this image that the elites have in their heads of the of the the way the world was fifty years ago. And I think you go to Silicon Valley, and the one thing that people have there is they they are absolutely at home with with disruption, with risk, with change. That is who they are. It's in their DNA in some weird way. And so they they read the book and they get it. I think here. In Washington, the elites tend to be preservers and they read a book about disruption and breaking down. And it's like it's a foreign language and they don't quite know what to make of it.
0: And one thing you said earlier is that you are, you know, democracy is really near and dear to you. Yes. And I'm curious how, if at all, that has evolved in the last few years, given sort of the quote, unquote, track record of of democracy and in other countries, perhaps, or how your views of, of democracy uh, have changed, if, if at all, and then uh, and then why? Uh, it, it's it's near and dear to because we seem at a time where we are, you know, genuinely, you know, questioning it relative to other potential instantiations.
1: Well, that's a real easy answer. Um, I was born in Cuba, so before I was ten years old, I had seen a dictator of the right and a dictator of the left, an authoritarian of the right, and a totalitarian of the left, okay? So I'm here to tell you that no matter how bad democracy appears to be functioning at the moment, it is infinitely better than any alternative. And also, which I I never tire of saying because people seem not to be noticing this, there are no alternatives. What is the alternative to liberal democracy today? When I grew up, there was a serious alternative. Before I was born, of course, there were even more serious ones in, in the, the fascist and, and, and uh, national socialist model, right? Now, I, I was in CIA. I fought the, the Cold War, and I say that metaphorically, uh, inside CIA. And let me tell you, there were, there were systems of life, of existence almost. They were not political... Differences. This was this this almost like a, it was like a religious war. Okay, we both had live systems that contradicted with one another, and anybody who tells you the choice was easy is a liar. I mean, I came from a country that had turned communist, but I'm here to tell you there were enormous numbers of wonderful, virtuous, courageous people who were communists and who were dying for what they thought was a magnificent cause. It was a terrible cause, I think, but these were good people who did that. So it was. It wasn't like all the good went to one side and all the bad went to the other, right? So that day is done. That day is done. What is left? What is the model that competes with democracy? I think part of the reason we feel free to kind of bat it around a little bit is because there are no consequences. Nobody says, well, should we not become the Chinese? Well, that's a laugh. Even the Chinese wouldn't be the Chinese if they had a choice, right? Theirs is an inherited model that they basically are, are, it's like they're riding a tiger and they're going to ride it as long as they can. Do you want to be Putin? I don't think so. Uh, I mean, 99% of Russians would say, no, please. So there are no alternatives to liberal democracy. Now, democracy can function better or worse. And my concern, of course, is the nihilist impulse, which says, of course, I don't care if there's there's an alternative or not. I just want to batter this thing down. I I want rubble. I want to make it rubble. So we'll, we'll make rubble out of our democracy. There are no alternatives. What do we have in, in that case? So that is one of the warnings that, that I hope people who listen to me will take away is that liberal democracy is it. There is no other fighter in the ring right now. Okay? It has knocked out every contender over the last 100 years. Number two, even so, it can be taken down it can be taken down by nihilism it can be taken down by a refusal to see that not perfect is better than terrible you know i mean you don't want to be living in hong kong which is the freest part of china as the freest part of china is a lot less free than the least free corner of the united states of america so um a little perspective i would say is is, is something that i would urge people um and and as things evolve then this transformation as, as the social, technical, political world be- evolve around around the, this gigantic explosion of information, how we manage, I mean, it's a huge opportunity in many ways, but how we manage this opportunity uh, to make democracy um, more viable.
0: If it's 10 years from now or whatever, five years from now and, and China is the clear world leader, do you think we're still having the same conversation? Um, I, I guess this goes back to, you know, how much of it is economics, really? In, in Peter Thiel's view, yeah, th- our main problems are diminishing overall economic growth as it relates to uh, innovation, and thus, you know, continued sort of, you know, s- competitiveness or over a smaller pie, or, or anxiety over over a smaller pie, you know, in governments and in, in private sector.
1: I honestly don't know what you're talking about. I mean, I, I, the American economy is one of the most dynamic in the world. I, I don't make predictions, but let's put it this way: I would be as astonished if China 10 years from now was even at the same high perch that it is right now in terms of its prestige and and, and political power and so forth. Um, That's, to me, it's, I mean, they they must be exceedingly clever and must be exceedingly um, tough to have maintained that crazy system. You're talking about a system that is cowboy capitalism with a Len- Marxist-Leninist ideology in the background. How the hell do you make that work? Okay. So I think there is a sell by date on that, honestly. Um, I've been surprised that the sell by date is as, as long as it has been. So maybe I'll be wrong about this, but I don't think so. And, and I, whether the US or some other democracy, real democracy is in the lead, who knows but in terms of we're not dividing up the pie i mean our economy is is growing pretty amazingly and it has been growing pretty amazingly since 2008 i mean, we're way past that mark i mean we're higher far higher than we were when that that tumble happened so that kind of talk i don't find i find very interesting i mean i, I don't really know where it comes from is it the same kind of people who believe that globalization somehow led to trump i I don't see that i don't see how that that has anything to do with anything
0: i I think it's uh i think robert gordon i'm not sure who had this book the rise and fall of economic growth uh i think his his thinking is, is that since 1973 we've growth rates have stalled in in some capacity relative to what they were you know the innovations that we had from the 30s to the 70s you know antibiotics i mean you just it were more impactful than the and the ones we've had since, although, of course, you encounter with the phone and the iPhone, and, and
1: yeah, I mean, there's a tremendous nostalgia for that world. I don't understand that either. Because so let me tell you, I lived it. I was there in 1973. Okay, I'm going to give myself away. And I, <laughs> and I mean, you would not want to go back to it. You would, you would be horrified. You would just think, well, how can people live in these little houses, and how can they they only have like these little these gigantic, clunky, gas guzzling cars? How 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 can they, you know? You can't travel on airplanes. It's so expensive. Only well, the rich people travel on airplanes. You can't communicate. They had three channels on television. They also have the same stuff in them. I mean, the life of a middle-class person in the 1970s today, I think most American people below the, the, the poverty line would be would reject it. I mean, it, it, that's no exaggeration. So this is a nostalgia that I see. I know it's very powerful that that's not the only book that, that has come up with that idea. I don't see it. I'm not an economist, so I'm not going to say that it's wrong, but, but I don't see it. I have not experienced that. I have traveled up and down this country, and and, um, and and I've done it for many years, and I don't see it. I just don't see it. There have been ups and there have been downs, but basically there has been growth. You know, Why, do people, why are we having an immigration battle? It's not because people come here to get some little share of the pie. They come here because they, they, they can thrive. They can thrive. Yeah. And the second and third generations, they're mainstream because yeah. the economy is wide open. So I I, I I don't buy that one.
0: And it, just to close the loop on China, you, you'd be shocked if we're talking about them in 10 years or surprised because of, that they're the equal stature that they have today because you think, you know, a, a non-democratic market economy just has structural challenges. No, uh,
1: no, I, I don't think... You can have a non-democratic market economy that, that goes on forever. That particular mix of sort of there's like a cowboy capitalism with a political mafia on top basically profiting from it. But what comes out of their mouth is old style Marxist-Leninist bizarre jargon, right? This is a levitation act, right? They, They are basically accepted because they have done so well with the economy. I have talked to people from China and what what I've heard more than once is this, you know, I'm I'm opposed to the system. I hate it. It's dictatorial and it's terrible. He says, but you know what? My grandfather slept with pigs in his hut and I have a degree from Harvard and I'm going back there now. Okay. And I'm going to be an educated, wealthy person. In, in, in so as long as they can deliver on that, um, they probably have, you know, uh, they, they can probably maintain their 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 authority, their power. But there has been no examples that I'm aware of in human history of economies that have only gone up and never gone down. If that if a system has a a, a recession and it may be there now, by the way, let's keep our eyes open and see what happens.
0: You were saying, you know, uh, democratic liberalism is as 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 one. There's a small, you know, group. You know, going back to the people who want to do charter cities. I guess a Mm -hmm. small group within the charter city group that wants to return. I don't know if return, uh, uh, but have a sort of more CEO of a CEO driven economy. So, so less voice, more exit, like a thousand, you know, uh, Singapore's. And if you don't like, you know, this iPhone, go to the Android and go, not like that, go to the different, what do you think about that?
1: I mean, I just think it will fly in the United States. I mean, the Singapore model is just not the American way. I mean, and I'm not saying that uh, judgmentally and just say that in a practical sense, people just say, you know, who are you to be telling me? Uh, and everybody will walk out. And, and if, if the option is exit, everybody exits. So, but you could have a, a city like that, which has a lot more shared voices uh, that are allowed to um, address the, the decisions that get made.
0: Totally. Let's go back to journalism for a second. Uh, I'm curious, what, what, what are some possibilities for what the role of, of journalists will be going forward and I'm also curious if you just have thoughts on the, the New York Times, or sort of, you know, it, it seems to, to be a very frenetic, frenetic time there. And I guess the evolving business model from from ad based to subscription is it, is it a possibility that the New York Times will become, you know, significantly dethroned? Uh, and New York Times and, and you know the papers it represents as a like right now, I think it's it still has some legitimacy. Will it be possible to, to lose all of its or most of its legitimacy?
1: Well, I mean, there's a brand the brand will probably last probably forever, you know, in, in practical sense, generations, I suspect. But if you're talking about the brand protecting the information that's being uh, put out, I mean, that's already discredited, I think. Now, if you know me, you know that I have a particular strong opinions about journalism. I think journalism is fairly worthless. Um, I, I I was raised with the idea that, Somehow or another, if you were a good citizen, you had to read your newspaper and know all about what's going on in the world. And one day it occurred to me, why? These people are ignoring vast chunks of the world, giving me what tiny little takes. You know, if you read a book you can be informed about something. If you if you read a journalist, I mean, you read the same journalist day after day, they contradict themselves constantly and they bounce around like they have some kind of personality disorder, right? One day it's one subject, next day it's another subject. How? No no footnotes, no integrity in the data. And now, of course, the politics is so powerful. And I think that, that there was a moment when the New York Times did have that uh, front page. It was supposed to be actually a report. There wasn't even a, an opinion piece saying you you can't cover Trump the way we covered previous politicians. And so that was basically a signal to the rest, because they do lead the rest of the media that, that OK, you know, basically we are no longer even pretending, which what they never, that's all they ever did, to be objective. We have sort of taken sides. So. You look at what's going on with the New York Times, and it's consistent with an information source that has taken a side in our American political struggles of the moment, right? But that means that everybody who's on the other side hates them, right? And they basically wrote off half the United States of America. But, I mean, the other half, that's a pretty decent business model if, you, if half of the people think you're good. They seem to be making a little bit of money on the, um, on the, um, the paywall, uh, I don't think it's ever gonna replace the ads, but at least it can keep them puttering along. And like I say, the brand is a powerful brand and, and unlikely to die. But I mean journalism, the point to journalism, what is news? Ask that this is where, where I came to and, and we talked about this in CIA is what is news? What is news?
0: You tell me. Information as it's as it's happening about about the world that is true.
1: <laughs> well, there you go. It it number one the world has an infinite amount of information being generated, right? So like 3 million people died in the Congo over the last 20 years. Did you hear about any of them, by the way? No, you did not. Because why? You sent a journalist down there and they're probably likely to die. So basically journalists are going to go to where they're not likely to die and they're going to give you the stories that that they like. You know, if, if they can be sent to the White House, suddenly they feel like an important person. So there's a whole lot of bias that happens as to who is where and why are they talking about this and not that, right? And then of course you get to the runaway bride moment in journalism. You can tell me, okay, why would you be talking about this? And and and, and or you know the singer said die or whatever. You know Michael Jackson. I mean, I was I was in a. Uh, in an airport, I think in Miami, and I hate the, the cameras, the, the, I mean, the, um, the, the monitors in, uh, in airports that show CNN because it just drive me crazy. And for, but I was there for two hours. And for two hours, they were showing this airplane that they said Michael Jackson was in, slowly idling down a ramp somewhere. I mean, it's like two hours of that, okay? This is news. So the answer, there's a very, very clear answer to what is news. News is anything that gets sold by the news business. That's it. That's what it is. Now, it's a business. They're trying to sell you stuff, information. Um, There's some stuff that I love looking at, baseball scores, for example. Uh, A lot of the political stuff is interesting, but you always have to know. So like, why are these people? The CIA always preferred to think there's no, it's not a question of truth or false, but of perspective. So who is talking to you? Who does this source, this voice represent? Why is he saying the things that he is saying, or she, and what, what effect, because nobody says anything for no reason, even if the reason is just to sell words, you know, whatever. You know, what is the effect that, that this person was intending to have? And if you put yourself like that, then news is like every other form of rhetoric, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a stranger one, and it's a commercial one, but it has no more intrinsic value than that.
0: Yeah, and this goes to the Antonio tweet you retweeted the other day about the new the unique wall between news and opinion being demolished, er, and and journalists being the last ones to even realize it.
1: Yeah, one of these days I'm gonna I'm gonna write down all of uh, Antonio's tweets and publish them in a book. It'll serve him right for not writing them up. I mean, he <laughs> he, he is the best uh, tweeter I think by by a country mile.
0: With just a few minutes left, mm-hmm. one, one question I'll, I'll, I'll ask broadly if you think there's anything we didn't get to cover that, that you wanted to cover um but but and then more specifically w- w- for people who did engage with the book who had critiques or even less critiques more w- what do you think were misunderstandings that or that some people had uh, from reading the book or 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 you know implications that they you know projected onto you that you weren't
1: right yeah i mean i have been amazed all my all my friends in, in San Francisco and in Paris and so forth, they get it. Some of them get it. I mean, someone would talk to me about the book and I go, oh, yeah. I hadn't even realized how smart I was. I mean, people get the book better than I do, you know. But I think there has been a, a – there, there is every once in a while somebody who feels like I have taken sides, right? It's like, oh, oh. well, the, they're either angry because they think I'm siding with the public and, and I'm some sort of crazy anarchist or they're angry because they think I'm I'm siding with the elites and I'm some sort of establishmentarian. And uh, and that happens to me pretty you know, occasionally. It's not as much as you might think. I have one or two reviews that were kind of foaming at the mouth, but hardly any, honestly, hardly any. And like I said before, my, my intent in writing the book was not – actually, that's an interesting, interesting development. I started the book thinking that I did have a side. I started the book thinking – well, of course I'm with the public, right? That's who I am. And turns out the more I got into it, I realized, well, there's, the public has these, these terrible utopian expectations. Then it gets, you know, basically frustrated because these expectations are not met. And then goes into a, a nihilistic rage about them. And I said, no, no, no. What I need to do here is describe, describe the two sides as accurately as possible, what the strengths and weaknesses of each are and how democracy is now caught in the middle i I sometimes get accused of being taking sides, but i i if i if I did that in any any place in the book it it was a failure on my part Let's talk a
0: little bit about um you know we've compared china and the u s mm-hmm. how about the um you know germany or, or even the europe europe model versus the u s in terms of you know uh wh- how bad is the crisis of authority and where is it least bad
1: well least bad I always get told. And I've been told this several times by several people. I said, what about Australia? Australia, apparently, is a pretty happy place. Okay. <laughs> so that's that. And and I looked it up. Said, yeah. Okay. Now, their last elections, they surprised. They had the same thing that happened here with Trump, where all the polls said one, you know, the, the liberal was going to win, but the conservative won instead. But, I mean, the differences over there are so minute. <laughs> they're all pretty happy. They're all pretty prosperous, you know, and... Uh, so that seems to be, and there are places, there are places that are, where this is not happening. It's not universal. Um, Europe as a whole is in deep trouble, I think. Deep trouble in many different ways. Uh, Europe is far more wedded to the old way of doing things than than we are. They do not have a Silicon Valley to disrupt things. Everything over there is government mandated. They're, I mean, they are brilliant they're hyper educated I, I, i've taken three trips to france this summer and there isn't the sm- smartest people on earth than the french people but they they have this government that is extremely top down that is extremely inflexible and rigid uh, and and that once you're in it, you stop listening. Whatever listening you did to the people that put you there, once you're there, you are in Olympus, and you speak to the other gods and not to the public. And there have been troubles. I mean, they they elect presidents, and then within a year of the the elections, they tank in in popularity, but tank down to like 10 15% popularity, terrible numbers. No American president has had them. So... They've had Macron, who was kind of like a ray of hope, and it's still that the, the jury's out on him. But then they had the yellow vest, which is entirely anti Macron. He was the thing that they gathered against um, in Europe and Britain. They've had Brexit, which was the perfect question for the public. It was essentially a yes or no question Do you stay or do you go? Then, you No, know, no, we go, right? That, that you always got to go for negation. Uh, but then you turn to the public and say, Well, what does that mean? And then there's a babble of voices, right? So they're, they're, the the babel of voices is continuing to this day. Nobody knows what that means. We're out, but what's that mean? We're out economically. We're out politically. We're out both, both. Um, we're out hard. We're out of the deal. Nobody knows, okay? So they are, in in Britain, mighty confused. The Germans are doing well economically, but they also have several populist parties, they call them. You know, basically, uh, Angela Merkel is one crisis away from having to resign. She's at the mercy of events right now. She's not that popular. She got thrashed in the last elections. It's a strange cats and dogs coalition government that she's in charge of. So it's hard to tell what's going to happen there. Italy is completely divided. They have really strong populist voices there. So as you go along, uh, Hungary, uh, Poland, both populists run. Europe, Europe has to sort itself out in this new era of disintegration. The, the Scots want to separate from Britain. The Catalonians want to separate from Spain. Disintegration is reaching the, the nation state level now. And, um, you know, the, the countries are beginning to unbundle essentially. And it's happening in Europe. Far, I mean, we have the same thing here to some extent when you look at the difference. With, uh, California is like a whole country of its own, but it's a very different, very different thing. Uh the very different the shared traditions we have uh that that they don't have over there so europe i would say is you know muddling ahead and and uh, i wouldn't want to overdraw you know overemphasize the, the crisis aspect but they they ha- they're going to have to overcome a lot to get to where they need to be
0: you know you you're i like your dichotomy of uh you know uniting for versus uniting against and i wonder if there's some sort of you know in order to uh, you know really attack climate change if there's, do we have to sort of make up an enemy? You know, we've done it like the war on terror, the war on drugs, you know, is there some sort of enemy that we make up because climate change right now is just too abstract of a thing for people to focus on?
1: Yeah, I mean, that is to me, that those are all, all those things you mentioned, including climate change uh, policy, are elite um, hobby horses because they all end up by giving the government more power and, and the established uh, authorities more more power. So, if you can come up with a way in which you can fight global um, warming by by giving individuals <clears throat> or, or localities more power uh, to decide what to do, um, that would probably be a lot more successful than than the war. All those wars ended. You know, the war on cancer, war on terror, they all pretty much ended with the enemy pretty much standing where he was when hostilities began. And, I mean, you you can't. These are not real wars. They're just. Um, rhetorical devices that governments use to, to gain more authority.
0: Yeah. And you know, the, the question to me is, um, is it, Hey, do you, between elites and people, do you genuinely give more power to the, to people in you know, more, you know, true, true democracy, and, and really trust that the decisions made as a result are, are good. Do you sort of make it seem as if it's a democracy, but really it's, it's a bunch of elites running, which is, you know, sort of what we have now, or, or is it more explicitly, you know, elites running <laughs> elites, elites running the show. And I, I get the sense from you that true democracy w- would be the preferred path of the three.
1: Well, I mean, there's an element that has to be taken into account. We have a representative government, right? And probably, uh, a country, almost certainly a country as big as ours, you can't put us all in one gigantic acropolis and we will all vote for us I mean, it's just, just too many of us. We're going to have to break it out into a kind of representative mode. But the problem is trust. The problem is trust. The more you you lengthen the chain between the public and the person making the decisions, the more that that chain starts to strain and to, and to even snap. And uh, in the old days, we tended to trust the people we elected. And and you know, you look at the days of uh, John F. Kennedy trusted government was always between 70 and 80%, right? Today, it's like between 20 and 30%. So it is very difficult, very difficult to sustain a representative mode of government in an absolute lack of trust environment. Now, I'm a believer in representatives, so I, I would say no. What you heard me say was, how do we get the public back on board? And I think the public back on board means, yeah, letting the public decide more. Uh, that may not necessarily be the best thing to do, but, um, it, it may be, um, the way to restore, uh, trust in the system as a whole, the established system.
0: I think that's a great, great place to close. Uh, my guest today has been Martin Guri. The book is the revolt of the public and crisis of authority. Martin, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast and also, uh, uh, listenership should definitely check out his blog, which he, uh, is, is, is writing in and, uh, Martin, you've you've earned uh, even more fame in Silicon Valley as a result of this episode. Thank you for coming on <laughs> the podcast.
1: Well, thank you very much. It's been fun.
0: If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash networkcatalyst.